What do you care if your brother ditches school? Why should he get to ditch when everybody else has to go? You could ditch. Yeah, I'd get caught. So you're pissed off because he ditches and doesn't get caught, is that it? Basically. Basically. And your problem is you. Excuse me? Excuse you. Welcome to the 130th episode of Egg Timer Philosophy. I'm your host, Eric Roark, and today's topic will focus on Isaiah Berlin's two concepts of liberty. But before jumping into Berlin's work, I want to give a big thank you to my listeners. The growth of the podcast over the past few months especially has been really substantial, and the show now routinely reaches people in an average of 40 countries over any week-long period. Uh, and that's just an amazing thing, and I'm, I'm so grateful to all my listeners for that. And I've also started to notice that Spotify ratings for this show are starting to appear, and those are helping to make the show more visible for new listeners. So thank you so much. And now on to Isaiah Berlin's 20th century classic in political thought, Two Concepts of Liberty. Berlin was born in Latvia in 1909, but he didn't stay there long. As a child, Berlin's family moved to St. Petersburg, Russia, where they lived through the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. Berlin and his family move again in short order, this time to London in roughly 1920-1921. And it's England where Berlin would become educated and continue his academic life as a philosopher. The main focus of his political writings gravitated towards concerns of human freedom in politics, and he was especially motivated and concerned by the threats to human freedom that he saw within communism and fascism. So that's a bit of Isaiah Berlin's background. For the rest of the episode, I want to focus on his most influential work, a 1958 lecture that he delivered at the University of Oxford entitled Two Concepts of Liberty. That lecture was reproduced in an essay under the same title, and I'll include a link to a free copy I found of that essay in the show's description. The two concepts of liberty that Berlin uses as the focus of his work are what he calls positive liberty and negative liberty. Positive liberty can be most easily described as liberty to do something. You have liberty in a positive sense when you're able to do what you genuinely wish to do without the interference of internal constraints. And this type of liberty stresses the idea of self-mastery. That's the phrase often used by those who emphasize positive liberty. The idea has a tradition that dates back to the ancient Greeks and has found modern support by thinkers such as Rousseau and Marx. The absence of internal constraints is the crucial element of positive liberty. Say a person desires to ask someone they are attracted to out on a date or seek a new job or use their freedom to pursue any action, but they are held back from doing what they wish to do because of fear, anxiety, self-deception, or any other number of internal constraints. This person then lacks, to some degree, positive liberty. No one is standing in their way or stopping them from exercising their freedom except themselves. 
positive liberty is only increased as a person is able to lessen the internal constraints that they have in respect to their own genuine desires. Now, negative liberty is quite different. It's best easily described as freedom from, as opposed to freedom to, in a positive sense. You have negative liberty when there are no external or outside forces preventing you from doing what you wish to do. So if you try to leave your house one morning, but during the night your neighbors have constructed an unscalable 30-foot wall around your property, then your liberty is being restricted in a negative sense. What stops you from doing what you want to do here are external constraints. It's your freedom from the actions of your neighbors that would be relevant here to your negative liberty. With both these concepts of liberty presented, Berlin does not try to suggest one is more important than the other. And that's probably wise on his part. Both concepts of liberty can be extremely important to a person, and it's not clear if you could only pick one at the exclusion of the other, which one you ought to pick. You could have all the positive liberty possible, but if you lack liberty from others doing what they wish to you, that's not a good situation. And likewise, you could have all the negative liberty possible, but if you lack the liberty to do, to do as you wish because of your own internal constraints, that's also not a good situation at all to be in. Liberty of both types matters a great deal in our lives. But this is where Berlin makes the focus of his ideas about liberty distinctly political in nature. Without trying to rank order positive and negative liberty per se, Berlin asks which type of liberty should be the focus of the political communities that we wish to live in. And, respect, and in respect of that question, Berlin, Berlin thinks that one concept of liberty is far superior to the other. For Berlin, the protection of negative liberty within a political context ought to be given sole priority as liberty is concerned. And not only does Berlin think that negative liberty ought to be politically prioritized over positive liberty, he actually argues that political attempts to advance the positive liberty of people can be very dangerous and ultimately wind up resulting in oppression. Before getting into why Berlin thinks that political attempts to advance positive liberty are so dangerous, let's consider the value of advancing negative liberty within a political context. In any pluralistic society, people are going to have differing ideas, offering often radically different ideas about what constitutes the good life. Views will vary a lot here. Focusing on negative liberty, freedom from the interference by others, offers everyone a space to carve out their own conception of the good life. It can serve as the fundamental building block to any classically liberal society. But it's just a building block, because there will be times when interference with liberty sure seems justified. To see why this is the case, consider that any law in any political community is a restriction of negative liberty. Whenever the state enacts and enforces 
any law, it is preventing a person from acting in some designated way. And as long as you think that some laws are justified, then you must also think that in a political sense, negative liberty shouldn't be absolute. And at this point, debates can be had about when the state is justified to restrict the negative, the negative liberty of people right? What's that distinction between just and unjust laws? And I don't want to get too caught up in that debate for this episode, but if you're looking for a plausible place to see where the state might be justified in restricting negative liberty, Mill's harm principle isn't a bad place to start. Now to the second part of Berlin's stance about why attempts to advance positive liberty in a political context can be dangerous and ought to be avoided. The problem that Berlin sees here goes back to the idea of what it means to have positive liberty or freedom to be constrained. That happens when internal constraints create a mismatch between our genuine desires and our actual actions. It happens when we have a type of divided self. But for Berlin, it's a dangerous thing for a political community to be assessing what the genuine desires of a person actually are. You can say your genuine desires are whatever, but who's to say this isn't just a mistake on your part? After all, you're likely to make such a mistake if internal constraints are indeed reducing your positive liberty. The danger here is that others, especially in a political context, could have far too much power to declare when such mistakes are occurring and take oppressive action to fix them. Consider an extreme case of this from George L. Orwell's classic 1984. The party can say that they are merely acting to advance your positive liberty because to be a good party member is your genuine desire. And you can object and say, no, it isn't. I have no desire to be a good party member. But that can be met with the response that you're just mistaken about this and that they are there to help fix the problem, your mismatch of self that restricts your positive liberty. For Berlin, this leaves the door far too open for oppression wrapped in the name of liberty. To close out this episode, it's worth stressing that applying the idea of positive liberty to yourself can be a very good thing. In some cases, it's probably the most important thing a person can do. Psychologically working through and better understanding the internal constraints that stand in their way of, that stand in the way of our freedom can be an extremely enlightening and self-enhancing activity. The benefits from this can be immense in our lives. The problem is with imposing the notion of positive liberty on other people, especially within a broad social and political context. Thanks for joining me this week, and I hope you'll stop back in about another week for the next episode of Egg Timer Philosophy. Until then, wishing you good philosophical vibes.